You're listening to the Global Research News Hour on radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Red River Metis, and the traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. Our program airs on partner radio stations across North America and is podcast at the site globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. The IPCC and other research bodies are warning of catastrophe, but they offer the opportunity for humankind to save themselves and the planet before it's too late. Like these main organizations, Guy McPherson is aware of the reality of severe climate disruption and its impact on our culture, our species, and the vast array of other species who will have to endure it. What makes McPherson somewhat unique, and possibly an irritation to these entities prognosticating on urgent threats, is his belief that it quite simply is too late. He says that so many self-reinforcing feedback loops have been triggered. There is quite simply no way to stop it. Even if all carbon dioxide ceased in its emissions, there's still enough in our atmosphere to continue to cook the planet. According to Dr. McPherson, humankind under current conditions should be gone as soon as 2026. I met Guy McPherson once before when he was giving a talk in Winnipeg six years ago. I had a chance to open up a conversation with him again in late August and get his update on climate crisis, the failure of humanity to acknowledge his work, and how he has found a kind of freedom while being burdened with a daunting message. Guy McPherson is a professor emeritus of natural resources and ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona. Guy taught and conducted research for more than 20 award-winning years at Texas A&M University, University of Arizona, University of California, Berkeley, Southern Utah University, and Grinnell College. He is currently living in Maitland, a suburb of Orlando, Florida. We began our chat with a rehash of the evidence, driving us way over the cliff of climate change that the experts fail to acknowledge. In, in short, there have been many, many cases through the years that have been well-documented people crying out to the wilderness, indicating that we must live differently than we're living now. And the, the, tr- the typical response through those decades has been to indeed live differently, pursue more privilege, burn more fossil fuels. Yes, we want to live differently. We want more. In fact, the expectation is that every generation will have more privilege, will have more stuff than the previous generation. So here we are, my generation, greatly benefiting from telecommunications technology and video screens and going to the movies and 10,000 things that each of us could list relative to my parents' generation. And the generation after mine, I'm 60 years old, the generation after mine enjoys amazing tools and amazing distractions, toys and tools that I I couldn't even have imagined when I was 25, 30 years old. You know, just take something as simple as the smartphone 
which we don't even call a smartphone anymore because everybody has one, or nearly everybody has one. They have it, they're walking around in their pocket with it. You know, the thing came into existence about a dozen years ago. That's it. And, and now, if you don't have one, you're looked at sort of oddly, like, what do you mean you don't have a phone that you can check your email messages on? What do you mean you don't have a phone that you can text, check your text messages on and so forth? And so there's this expectation that things will get better, meaning more access to more people and more stuff and more information than ever before. And that comes at a price. And we're now paying the price. We're seeing the loss of habitat for vertebrates, the loss of habitat for mammals. We're vertebrate mammals. We're seeing loss of habitat for our own species, Homo sapiens. In fact, there's a paper in Science Advances published earlier this year by Colin Raymond and colleagues indicating that we have surpassed lethal wet bulb temperatures in many places around the globe in the subtropical and tropical areas. And as a consequence, we're losing habitat for human beings. Well, of course, if we look back and take a relatively thoughtful retrospective view, of course you can't be chasing privilege and every toy and every bit of money and expect everybody to live high on the hog, as they say, without some consequences. And here we are experiencing the consequences. And most people I've talked to are shocked. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's not exactly, uh, you know, the typical, you know, uh, banter over a, a soap. Um, but I, I just, in particular, I wanted to uh, get you to say a few words about the state of ice, you know, the, 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 the Arctic. I know that green, Greenland, Greenland is melting uh, quite rapidly. Um, and uh, I, I'm wondering about, you know, the, the whole issue of the, the, the whole cap of the of the North Pole. I know that we're getting to that time of year where we're going to see, you know, whether or not that uh, ice pole is is going to completely melt. And uh, I'm wondering if you could explain that situation because I, I know that, for example, if I hold a glass full of ice uh, and it's going to take a real long time to melt, but once that single sliver of ice melts, it heats up rapidly. So, right. you know, so that, that, that suggests to me, like, what's going to happen with the North Pole? Are we going to see, like, massive uh, warming up of the, the whole ocean and the Arctic? How do you see that uh, expressing itself? Well, we are clearly experiencing right now what most people would call the worst case scenario. And yet, I would argue that with respect to the Arctic ice, we've been lucky so far. There's a paper written by Vislav Mislavsky and colleagues published in the Annual Review of Earth and Planetary Sciences in 2012. And they projected, based on existing information, based on existing data, they projected using a linear projection that the Arctic would be ice-free in 2016, plus or minus three years. So, that means there were seven years that they projected the Arctic would have been ice-free, and the last of those years was 2019. And guess what? It wasn't. And that's fantastic. That's great news for humans and every other organism on the planet because the Arctic is the planetary air conditioner. What happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. 
In fact, the faster the Arctic is heating up, and right now it's heating up three to five times faster than the rest of the planet, so very rapidly. The faster it heats up in the Arctic, the faster we lose habitat all around the planet for humans. The Arctic ice projected to be gone by now, it appears will be gone very soon. Current projections indicate that it could be gone later this month, and I know that we're only five days from the end of the month, here on August 26th. Sir, I, I, I can't imagine a scenario in which we have any ice in the Arctic by the end of the melt season, which is typically the uh, autumnal equinox, approximately the 20th of September. So we have nearly a month to go between now and then, and the ice is very thin and it's breaking up quite rapidly. In fact, one of my recent peer-reviewed papers is on that very topic, published in Earth and Environmental Science Research and Reviews. It's called The Role of Conservation Biology in Understanding the Importance of Arctic Sea Ice. And the paper explains that from my perspective, and obviously many other people's perspective as conservation biologists, we understand two important features here. One, the rate of change and the rate of environmental change, especially as influenced by the Arctic ice, is profound. It is, the ice is disappearing so quickly, and as a consequence, we're losing habitat throughout the world very quickly. The other key feature is habitat. What does that even mean? Most people might have heard that word, but they think it only applies to non-human animals. In fact, as animals, specifically as vertebrate mammals, we depend upon relatively cool conditions at the level of the entire planet to grow the food for our own survival. So we're already at a higher global average temperature than ever experienced by Homo sapiens in the past by a wide margin, in fact. And there's no known way to cool the planet. There's no way that has been demonstrated that can cool or even stabilize the temperature of Earth. There are several means by which we can increase the global average temperature of Earth, but that's not what we want to do. So it looks really terrible at this particular moment, and I don't see any means by which it's going to get better anytime soon. So essentially, once that the, once we get to that point where the, the uh, ice cap is melted, that's going to trigger a, a rapid uh, rush on of, of uh, weather and uh, all sorts of animals uh, and, and plants are, are going to have to adapt, which they can't, at least according to uh, you know, a press report. And that effect triggers the, uh, the end as, as we know it. Right. Consider, for example, and you mentioned this earlier, when you're walking around with a glass of ice and it melts, it takes a lot of energy to melt the ice and turn it into liquid water. The level of water doesn't rise because it's melting ice. Same with the Arctic. As the Arctic ice melts, sea level does not go up. But the more the ice melts, the more water is produced. Now, it takes... 79.2 calories <laughs> to turn one gram of solid ice 
into one milliliter of liquid water. 79.2 calories, we'll just say roughly 80, and that's the number most people use. However, once the ice is gone, once it is all converted to water, that same 80 calories put into that one milliliter of water warms it to 80 degrees Celsius. That's scalding hot. So these, the same energy that's going into melting ice, once the ice is melted, accelerates greatly the rate of change and causes a tremendous rise in the temperature of that water. Now it's water, not ice. When that happens to the Arctic and we're on the verge, that is going to change everything at the level of the entire planet. You cannot warm up, you know, all the oceans are connected. We refer to them by different names, the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Arctic Ocean and so on, but they're all one ocean. So as it warms up in the Arctic Ocean, it won't take long because of global circulation patterns for that temperature rise to affect all of the ocean on the planet. And what happens in the ocean, which is, you know, 75% or so of the volume of Earth, that then translates to what happens in the terrestrial regions. So the oceans warm up, that means that the land warms up as well. And it's not decades away. It, that doesn't take many decades to happen. When the ocean warms up, within a year, the, the planet, the terrestrial planet is warmed up as well. So what happens in the Arctic affects the entire globe and very quickly. And the link is very rapid and unchangeable, intransmutable. So we have triggered something that has taken the situation out of human hands and that is getting worse literally by the day. And I don't see any way out. And I'm not happy about that, obviously. As a human animal, I want to have habitat for me too. But I just don't see any way out of this conundrum. We've, we've painted ourselves into a corner that I don't see a way out of. Guy, I, I wanted to take the, the conversation to this uh, topic that uh, you, you've become uh, more and more uh, aware of, um, the so-called uh, the aerosol masking effect or the uh, McPherson paradox. Um, I know that uh, I haven't heard very much about it. It's certainly not in the mainstream media or in any media, really. Um, why don't you explain the basic principle uh, of the effect that, that that is having? Right. So the, the McPherson paradox was named by an online friend and supporter of mine, Bill Eddy. And the, the paradox is this, if we continue with business as usual, or as we've been doing for the last few decades, accelerating business as usual, we put more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. The best known of these is carbon dioxide, but there's also water vapor and methane, chlorofluorocarbons, and at least 39 more. So we continue to put these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, they continue to act as a blanket so that the earth once heated, that heat is trapped by the greenhouse gases. So it can't escape. So the earth continues to warm. Most people know about that part of the story. Most people these days have heard it from the time they're in elementary school or junior high school. 
So they, this is only going up to like past the troposphere or, or higher? So the, the greenhouse gases, is that the question? Uh, well, just the, the, the level of uh, the, the silt that, that was the, the, that was blocking the, the light. Is it going up to the top of the troposphere? Yes. So the greenhouse gases themselves are at various layers in the atmosphere, and they all act as a blanket to hold the heat of the Earth once the Earth is heated by the sun. The other side of the paradox, so most people are familiar with that side of the paradox, that greenhouse gases are responsible for overheating the earth, and we're now at more than two degrees Celsius above the 1750 baseline. Okay, the other side of the, so, so if you only knew that much, you would think, well, what we need to do then is reduce or eliminate industrial activity. It's the industrial activity that produces the carbon dioxide and the methane and the water vapor and the chlorofluorocarbons and so on. So if we just get rid of those, surely that will help cool the planet. Uh-oh, I have really bad news. The same time industrial activity produces all of those greenhouse gases, industrial activity also produces aerosols, things like soot. Those aerosols go into the atmosphere notably into the upper atmosphere, and prevent incoming sunlight from even striking the Earth. They act as something of a mirror or an umbrella. So the sunlight coming from the sun, trying to reach the Earth to warm it up and have that, have that warm air trapped by those greenhouse gases, it can't even get in. It can't even get in beyond the upper atmosphere so it can bounce back out into space. The real challenge here is that the greenhouse gases are persistent for a long period of time. The heating associated with current levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is more than 400 parts per million right now, the current heating associated with that more than 400 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere persists for at least a thousand years. Yeah. Those, those aerosols, on the other hand, fall out within a matter of a few weeks. They're constantly falling out of the atmosphere and if we stop putting them into the atmosphere, they all fall out. According to James Hansen in a video interview subsequently, I believe removed from YouTube, he said it takes five days for all those aerosols to fall out of the atmosphere. Uh, the general consensus among other climate scientists seems to be about six weeks, but either way, that's much shorter than a growing season. And so it's much shorter than plants and therefore animals can adapt. So that's the twin sides of the paradox. If we keep overheating the planet, we're going to produce these greenhouse gases that ex in, in an accelerating manner overheat the planet. On the other hand, if we stop or even slow industrial activity, latest evidence based on a paper in Science from February 2018 indicates that as little as a 20% reduction in industrial activity will trigger a one degree Celsius global average temperature rise. So we're in this damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. If we maintain business as usual, we put up those greenhouse gases, we continue to overheat the earth. If we even slow, much less stop industrial activity by about 20%, slowing it down, that's gonna cause an even more abrupt rise in global average temperature. Now we might've done that already. It wouldn't surprise me if COVID-19 caused a reduction in industrial activity starting in Wuhan then moving to India, 
then moving to Eurasia and ultimately to North America, spots here and there around the globe that very well might have been sufficient to cause the loss of aerosol masking or global dimming as it's sometimes, sometimes called to trigger global average temperature rise or even regional temperature rise. We just haven't felt it yet because we haven't harvested the crops. When it comes time to harvest soybeans and corn, and that time is coming within the next couple of months, then it could be catastrophic crop failures will be responsible for the loss of a tremendous number of human lives. Wow. Um, you know, I know that in the mainstream, uh, well, it's, it's all like well, at least six uh, uh, articles in the peer-reviewed literature it's written about. It's, it's not uh, mythology. And uh, yet we have, you know, Greta and we have all of the, uh, the uh, you know, people who are wanting to stop this uh, from taking place. But, you know, th this is an important uh, point that you've got to add on as well. And, and they don't seem to really want to respond to it. I mean, uh, I mean, I, assuming they're sincere people, I mean, what, what happens to, to, to intercept this issue? Why, why can't they talk about the uh, the interception uh, of these uh, uh, the aerosol masking effect and, uh, and and incorporate that in their overall plan to you know address the situation that's a great question for which I do not have a great answer okay. however I propose that a an idea see if I can find the paper right now. Oh yes, here it is. On um, pages 28 through 31 of Clinical Psychology Forum, I wrote a paper. So this is a peer-reviewed article and it's called Going Halfway. Climate reports ignore the full evidence and therapists ignore grief recovery. Now I wanted to add on that last bit about therapists ignoring grief recovery because that's what makes such an article appealing to the readers of Clinical Psychology Forum. But the general point that I tried to make here was that climate reports typically ignore the aerosol masking effect, reported in more than two dozen peer-reviewed articles since 1929. They typically ignore it, and I think I have a good reason for that. I don't know for sure why people ignore that, but I have been defamed widely for presenting this information. It costs me privilege when that happens. I think people are not reporting the aerosol masking effect or global dimming because they would lose privilege if they talked about it. At the larger level, if you adhere to the idea that there are sociopaths who control much of the information we receive, then of course those people do not want you and I to receive this information because what it says is we don't need to conserve. We don't need to conserve gasoline and diesel and natural gas. We need to burn it just as fast or faster than we always have. What that means is since each of these is in limited supply, that whatever I use, you don't get to use. And if you're one of these wealthy people who likes to fly around the globe a lot and you want to maintain that lifestyle for as long as you can, then your, your job is to convince me and six billion other people 
that we should not use those finite materials because then the sociopaths get to use them. They're finite after all. There's only a certain amount of coal and a certain amount of natural gas and a certain amount of, of oil that can be distilled into diesel and gasoline, for example. And so if we can just prevent you and me from using them, then that leaves some for the other people. And this is an idea, it's not new to me. There's a guy named William Stanley Jeffens who wrote a book in 1865, I believe it was, called The, the Coal Question. And he pointed this out in 1865. In 1865, William Stanley Jevons wrote a book that you have never heard of and most people have never heard of either. And there's a reason you've never heard of it. Because the people who benefit greatly from us not using fossil fuels are the same people who we sometimes call the 1%. The people who are using more of the fossil fuels proportionally than any of the rest of us on the planet. They aren't going to tell us. Why would they? Then we'd start consuming like there's no tomorrow, which is exactly what they're doing. And therefore, we'd run out of tomorrows even faster. Um, you, you, you just mentioned the COVID um, and uh, the, the impact. I, I, I would agree that uh, probably uh, that, that that would be the most dramatic uh, disappearance in the uh, that level of aerosol that we've seen in a long time, including 9/11. Um, so, I mean, what what would you uh, do? You anticipate uh, the, uh, the, the, the that there would be a, a major uprise in that uh, that that amount of uh, time, and and also talk about the the level, the extent to which that uh, increase happens in a relatively short time. So it's not just that it's happening like over the span of a lot of years, it's happening in a relatively quick time frame. Right, so for example, this last year in the interior of North America, the grain growing region of North America, from the Southern Great Plains all the way up to the Northern Great Plains in central Canada. So in that area this year, we had two things happened in the same year. We had catastrophic flooding to begin the planting season, planting of things like corn and soybeans and wheat. And then by July, by June in fact, we had catastrophic drought gripping the region. And this is exactly the kind of variation in regional temperature we would expect from loss of aerosol masking. And so I think that's what has happened, and I'm, I think that will cause a dramatic decline in crop production. It had relatively little impact on the wheat harvest because that was already done in, early in the year. The grains that really matter, though, the grains that feed the world are coin, corn and soybeans. And if we are unable to produce as much corn and soybeans as we did last year and the year before, that spells really bad news for people who rely upon food for survival. And that's us, as it turns out, all of us. And it doesn't really matter what you as an individual eat because the absence of major grains being available for the food supply 
affects the entire society, not just you and me. So it's not like it's not like you and I can decide. Okay, that's it. No more coin for corn for me. And by the way, try giving that a decent attempt because almost everything you eat in North America has high fructose corn syrup in it, has corn in some form in it. So if you and I decide that we're not going to eat corn anymore, we still got a lot of people who are eating corn. And the corn is found in almost everything. And the same goes for soybeans. So I can't just decide someday, all right, I'm going to stay alive by eating apples. Because the same weather and climate patterns that affect corn and soybeans also affect pecans and almonds and apples and every other thing. So will we see a profound decrease in crop production this year? I suspect so. And if not, we are not too far from that happening, not too long from that happening. And I don't see any way around that simply by changing our dietary habits because we, we're, we're, we've been sucked in. We're, we're corn nation here in the United States. Almost everything we eat has corn in it. So we can't just suddenly have a large scale shift in diet with respect to 340 million people. We aren't gonna do that overnight. And even if we could, as I indicated, the same weather and climate cycles that affect the grains also affect everything else. So it's not like we can turn to an alternative unless we have a heck of a lot of canned goods on the shelf. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast from Winnipeg on CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are podcast at the site globalresearch.ca. I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, a special and timely issue on the threat of near-term human extinction with Professor Guy McPherson. Is it conceivable that maybe some people who are, at least for a, a short period of time, growing their own, you know, in their little greenhouse and, and growing their own uh, items and so forth, uh, that they might last a, a little bit longer than the, uh, the folks that are, you know, reliant on the corn syrup and uh, all those other things and are, are helpless without a credit card? I mean, what, how much of an advantage, put it this way, how much of an advantage could someone who's, you know, able to uh, live off the grid, so, so to speak, how, how much time uh, would they have in advance of the, uh, the others? Well, I used to believe it would be many decades, and that's why I lived off-grid for a decade before I became fully aware of the impacts of the aerosol masking effect. So I walked away from the monetary system 11 and a half years ago, and I did and I, and I made personal sacrifices because I thought it would, quote, save the world. And then I came to realize the full effect of the aerosol masking effect or global dimming. And I realized what a terrible mistake I'd made. So no habitat means no habitat. That applies for everybody. However, could you get a little longer? Could you eke out a few more months or even a few more years? Probably. Probably so, but once habitat is gone for our species, that's not gonna persist very long. Yes, you can eat the canned foods from your bunker. Yes, you can drink the stored water from your bunker for a finite amount of time. And I've no doubt that there are people intending to do just that. That was me not that long ago, starting in 2007. 
I began such a project myself. Learned how to grow food and do animal husbandry for small animals and so on. However, when industrial civilization fails, we will also experience the catastrophic meltdown of some 460 or so nuclear power plants. A recent paper in Frontiers in Plant Science published May 8th, 2020 by Musso and Moeller indicates that the uncontrolled meltdown of those nuclear power facilities will cause the loss of all plant life on Earth. All plant life on Earth. Without plants, we're going to be hard-pressed to find something to eat because that's the base of the terrestrial food web. We're, we're rapidly losing phytoplankton in the ocean. That's the base of the marine food web. Without oxygen. Not to mention oxygen. <laughs> yes. So we're, we're going to be hard-pressed to survive without oxygen and without food. That's the bottom line. Now, could you maybe eke out a few more months or a few more years? Yes, and people are attempting to do just that. Once I came to grips with the full impact of the aerosol masking effect, I decided, I decided that my, my life's work as a teacher was more important than a few months or a few years of additional survival. So I returned to my teaching activities, for example, through conversations like this one, and many other conversations in my writing. And for better and worse, that's where I am now, back to being a teacher with what I think is the most important information in human history. So I'm going to stick with that for a while. Yeah, and uh, the, the academic, I mean, you are something of a, uh, a lone horse, or at least there are relatively little people willing to come out of the out in the open and, and say the things that you've been saying um i feel like we've asked this question before but i, I think that maybe you could uh, discuss what what what's discouraging your fellow academics from from focusing on these things i mean are more and more people quietly even coming forward with the message we're too late or, or is there some sort of pushback taking place that, that effectively shuts it out well, there are more people publishing information about self-reinforcing feedback loops that have already been triggered. And each one of those, and as you pointed out, there are dozens now, each one of those that is reported upon tells us that there's no way, there's no actions that we can take, even at the societal level, that will slow or stop climate change. So those papers are being published increasingly. In fact, the IPCC concluded in late 2019 that global heating was irreversible. And they attributed that to the heat stored in the oceans. But when a conservative body like the IPCC concludes that heating is now irreversible, that's got to make people pause. Why are not more people talking about it and writing about it? I think loss of privilege comes immediately to mind. I, I think few people understand how much privilege I lost by presenting evidence that had been generated by other people. That's all I was doing. 
I was just connecting a few dots with a paper here and a paper there, all from peer-reviewed literature, indicating that we're in the midst of abrupt irreversible climate change. And that's it. I was just using other people's research and connecting these obvious pieces of evidence, and it destroyed me. It, you know, it resulted in what I believe was a well-organized government attempt to remove, remove me from public service. And it was very successful, a very effective operation that has me now essentially unable, even for free, to tour and present this information. So nobody wants to have that happen. Essentially every relationship in my life was destroyed. Nobody wants that to happen. So there, you know, there's a, a variety of good reasons that people don't want to take the path that I have taken, even if it is rooted in evidence, even if it is, even if it leads to an unimpeachable conclusion, still people don't want to know. You don't even want to know that you're going to die. Neither do I. Extend that to our whole species. Nobody wants to know that every member of their family and every friend they've ever known is going to die, that our entire species is going to disappear from the planet. Nobody wants to know that. No, but it doesn't matter. The truth is the truth. Evidence points to further evidence, which indicates what we call the truth. And we, we can't just turn away from that. That's been my approach for my entire adult life that turning away from the evidence doesn't make it false. So let's just come to grips with the evidence and live with it and deal with it and conduct our lives accordingly. And if we're not able to do that, what does that say about us? What, is about, what does that say about us as human beings that we are unwilling even to come to grips with the simple information that we all, that we all know is true? For example, every living thing dies. Every species goes extinct. But you say those words in public and people look at you like you've been picking your nose the whole time. What is the matter with that person? So I can understand why other people, including other scientists, are unwilling to promulgate the obvious evidence. I can understand that. Well, I, I'm, I, I guess it was uh, maybe last year or no, yeah, yeah, about last, well, 2019, uh, Dr. David Suzuki came to the University of Winnipeg campus, and uh, I mean, he was talking about you know the, the October 2018 report, which, uh, oh, by the way, instead of referencing the uh, 1770 reported references, they they, they, they flipped the, the time switch for no reason. But anyway, the uh, he 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 addressed what you said. I mean, not by name, but he, he addressed. Uh, some of the uh, the sort of evidence that he's been putting forward, and what he says is that uh, well, you know, mankind is uh, very ignorant. For example, you, there was a an example of a a very um, uh, a species that the, the best science says well it, this is going to get go extinct, but you know what it actually survived and thrived. So he's saying well you know we don't know that this uh, I mean yes it all looks bad, but at the same time, you don't want to say it's over because there's so much we don't know. So, so how would you address that, uh, that kind of point? Right. I'm surprised he didn't mention me by name because he has been quick to defame me in the past. 
So here's a man who has enough money that he has five mansions, one for each of his five children. Oh, gee, look at the sacrifices he's making. None. Five children? Come on, David Suzuki, you had to know the consequences of too many people on the planet a long time ago. Like, say, for example, when the 1968 book came out by Ehrlich, Paul Ehrlich called The Population Bomb. So I would... I, I would agree on one hand that we don't know everything, certainly, and we never will. It could be that we get through this. I don't see how, because there are so many ways that we can go extinct, and we seem to be rabid, rabidly pursuing each of them at the level of society. That aside, I would be ecstatic for our species to not go extinct, but there is no known way to slow or reverse climate change. That's it. There are many ways. I, I point out more than half a dozen of them in my pe recent peer-reviewed papers. There are many ways to increase rapidly the global average temperature of the planet. And because we are vertebrate mammals, it's difficult for me to understand how we will adapt to that kind of rapid change. I would love to think I'm wrong. Nobody in the history of this planet has ever wanted to be wrong more than I want to be wrong. However, until David Suzuki tells me where I'm wrong and how I'm wrong and how we're going to overcome the hurdles in front of us, I'm gonna stick with my story. Well, wait a second. I mean, you, you, there was a time when you, you came up to your early conclusion and you decided, okay, I'm gonna build a butt hut. And we're, I'm going to, you know, we're going to build this and everybody should go and join me. Well, later on, you found out about the, the aerosol masking effect and, and you go, oh, geez, I, I made a mistake. We, this is the, this people would, we would have destroyed ourselves already if we followed this. So, I mean, I'm, I'm putting the position to you now that maybe your understanding is not complete right. as, as it stands now. And so right. how, how would you then uh, adapt to that because uh, i mean it, it is possible there's something you're not seeing right? yeah so. absolutely i would love to be wrong again i would love to be wrong about my conclusions i would love to i would love to be wrong by a matter of years by a matter of decades by a matter of forever but there are seven other species in the genus homo that have already gone extinct to think that we would not join those species in going extinct seems full of hubris to me. At some point we're going to go extinct. Will it be as soon as I think it will be? I certainly hope not. And I'm not even a fan of hope. Could I be wrong? Yes. And I would love for David Suzuki or anybody else to point out to me where I'm wrong. I would love for any of those people to come forward and look at my recent peer-reviewed literature, including the paper that's currently in press in the Journal of Natural Sciences, and indicate to me where I'm wrong. Because all of the evidence I've been presenting since I reached the conclusion of near-term human extinction, all of the evidence is in the peer-reviewed literature. And so most recently, I've been summarizing, collating, organizing the peer-reviewed liter literature and putting it into peer-reviewed paper myself because that's how the word gets out in the scientific community. That's how we agree that this is reliable knowledge. That does not mean that I'm 100% right. 
But that does not mean that I, that I don't want to be wrong because I do want to be wrong. But science, the, the evidence that we have at hand changes over time. And so we used to believe things that we no longer believe based on subsequent evidence. I would love for anybody to present evidence indicating that my recent peer-reviewed papers are wrong all the way from the papers in the Clinical Psychology Forum to the Journal of Natural Sciences. It's a whole thing. I would love to be wrong, but I don't see anybody doing that. I see a lot of people defaming me without facts. I see a lot of people saying horrible things about me without evidence, but I don't see anybody countering the evidence I present. So now we're in the situation of my opinion is worth more than your evidence. And that's where I think we are with the people who are gleefully saying terrible things about it. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I noticed that um, your own father, James uh, Lyle McPherson, had, had passed away very recently. And my condolences to you. Uh, but uh, I, I'm wondering if, if you could maybe say a, a few words about uh, his influence on uh, your research, on your resolve to stick to the truth and then everything you've been going through over the, the past few years. With, uh, what, what yeah, you my dad passed away on July 21st of this year at the age of 82 years, almost 83. He would have been 83 on September 2nd. And he, he instilled in me a sense of character and a sense of will that persists today. He is undoubtedly responsible for my strong will in light of things like an organized defamation campaign, for example, in light of nobody on the planet agreeing with what I'm, with my conclusions. That comes from him. And it was a source of his suffering toward the end of his life, as you can imagine, because he had such a strong will that he had always been in control of his life in the situation around him. And he died from Alzheimer's, ultimately, or I guess approximately he died from, from Alzheimer's. Ultimately, he died from COVID-19. But he had this strong sense of will that told him that he was able to do things. But many of those things he could no longer do. He could no longer feed himself. He could no longer properly dress, dress himself for societal functions. And I don't know for sure because we grew apart in our latter years, but I strongly suspect that those caused, that, that strong will in the acts to follow caused him great suffering because he thought he could control his life. He thought he could control his actions. He thought he could do all of things, these things that he used to be able to do, but he couldn't anymore. And I want to throw in an analogy here, something I've never mentioned in public before. I took, what's it called? Psycho, psycho, psilocybin, psilocybin. I took mushrooms of psilocybin in them for the first time many months ago. And... I, uh, because I have the same strong 
strong sense of will that my dad had, I knew I had to remain in control. And the whole point of taking psilocybin is to let go, is to not remain in control, is to enjoy the experience of the, the view and the sounds and the smells and the whole thing. And I couldn't do it. There was this epic battle going on in my tiny brain about who was in control here and who was going to let go. And ultimately, I just went back home. I'd been in a forested park. And I went back home, and at 5 o'clock in the evening, I went upstairs and I lay in bed because I was afraid to interact with people. Now that my social filter was gone, I was afraid I would embarrass myself and other people by saying things that I still hold to be true, but that we just don't say in public. <laughs> and ultimately, after laying in bed for a long time, I, I realized I had to do something to exert my control over my own body. So I got up and I stumbled to the bathroom. I was still not very stable. And I flossed and brushed my teeth and took a shower and went back to bed. And that told me that I had won. And of course, what that meant was that I had lost because I refused to give in to this experience that for many people alters their perception of the world from that day forward. Because I had inherited either evolutionarily or through actions, my dad's strong sense of will, I was not able to experience something that is a defining moment for many people. And I just couldn't go there because my strong sense of will kept telling me that I had to be in charge. And I think that's terribly sad. And I think that what my dad experienced at the end was very sad as well. Well, thanks. Thanks for that, uh, Guy. Um, one, maybe one more question that if, uh, I could put to you. Um, I know that uh, this uh, fellow, uh, Tim Bob, who's uh, regularly uses your uh, lectures in, in conjunction with other things, he does it very artfully. I remember once he put together a, 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 com a combination of your uh, lecture with uh, a, a, an episode called Star Trek The Next Generation. And that one showed him, you know, drifting over to this uh, episode where Picard is you know, in going into uh, an ancient civilization and they feel like uh, over time he's adjusting, but he is uh, finding out that uh, his, uh, that, that, uh, that culture is coming to an end, that they were, they were facing their own uh, inevitable end, finally. Um, so I'm, it was a very beautiful episode, but I guess it, it, one, it, it makes me wonder if there isn't going to be a point where the society or you know, a portion of it comes to the conclusion that, yeah, this is it, we are going to die. What, what are your thoughts about that? Are we gonna have this moment where all of us are preparing for uh, an end or is it just gonna be maybe uh, on the one hand, there's a small group of people who are uh, adjusting to that reality while the, the masses are saying, uh, you know, we're gonna cut your taxes and do whatever. What do you think, what, what are your thoughts about that, uh, about I, how we face? That's a great question. I really appreciate Tim Bob. I've never met him. I've corresponded with him. I think he lives in England, but in any event, 
he's done some really remarkable work for free, which I think is wonderful. He's a great editor. I think all of the above. I think that had I been allowed to continue getting my message out, that many more people would now know that we face the end of this set of living arrangements and therefore the end of all of our lives. But I was not allowed to continue with that information. I was derailed in my lifelong efforts to teach. And, and yet a few people know already, probably more than a few, probably many thousands of people know that this set of living arrangements cannot persist much longer and that shortly thereafter we lose habitat for humans and they will die. How are they acting? I'd like to think that a lot of them are acting the same way I'm acting and the way that I've been suggesting people act for a long time, which is with the pursuit of evidence and the pursuit of love. I don't know because I have such limited interaction with individuals. You know, in my daily life, I come into contact with one or two people each day. That's it. Each week, maybe 40 or 50 people, and that includes online and every other way. So it's hard for me to say. On the other hand, I don't think the entire society, I don't think the entire, the entirety of North America, I don't think everybody in the United States, I don't think everybody in Canada is going to conclude at some point, hey, we're all going to die. There's a wonderful short story written by Ray Bradbury, and I'm having difficulty coming up with the name of it. It's something like The Last Night, but that doesn't sound quite right. And everybody knows that they're all going to die, and it's going to be tonight. Do you, have you read that story? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I, I can't remember. It was a long time ago. <laughs> right, right. I think it was written in the late 40s, early 50s, something like that. I didn't read it then, by the way. <laughs> I read it a couple or three years ago, again, for the second time. And everybody knows they're going to die and that it's going to be tonight in their sleep. And nobody in that story rushes to go from New York, New York to Los Angeles where they will get an extra three hours. Everybody goes to sleep and does this traditional acts that they do before they go to sleep every night. They, they kiss their lover goodnight and they disappear into the long night. I would love to think that people would reach that point of enlightenment that we are all going to die and that it's going to be relatively soon. Unfortunately, it will not be all one night. Unfortunately, I suspect there will be a lot of chaos, but we don't have to contribute to that chaos as individuals. We can recognize what's going on around us and say, yes, this is what it looks like when a civilization falls. This is what it looks like when there's no food on the grocery store shelves anymore. I get to determine how I respond to that information. I get to determine whether I take a knife and go after my neighbor for the last pot of beans, or more importantly, the last can of peaches. I get to decide that. So do you. When we see things breaking down around us, we get to decide what we're going to do. I suspect most people will behave as they have in the latter part of their lives and that, that those actions will be exacerbated so that the people who are notably kind to other people will be even more kind to other people. And I suspect the people who are mean-spirited takers, as Daniel Quinn would call them, 
will become even more so, will become more violent, will go to even greater lengths to secure that last can of peaches. But again, I don't have any control over other people's actions. You could argue that we don't have much control over our own actions. To the extent we're able, I would like to proceed with evidence and with love as we go forward, no matter how long we have left. Well, Guy, I mean, there is a saying that uh, the, uh, you know, you know, when an old, uh, you know, uh, indigenous expression, you know, it's it's a good day to die, you know, and uh, you know, maybe that's maybe that's where where we are at, you know, that uh, where, where whatever whatever our fate, you know, this is it, you know, today, you know, this is a good day to to die. So uh, I, uh, I'm of course I'm I'm going to have to close the the lecture here, but uh, I was really glad to uh, finally have an opportunity to interview you uh, one more time. And uh, I, uh, very, I'm very hopeful that uh, you'll find whatever uh, last uh, pursuit you might be willing to uh, address. And uh, yeah, uh, thank you very much for your time, Guy. Well, thank you, Michael. You remind me here at the end of our conversation, there's a Latin expression, fata mori which is love your fate. No matter what it is, love your fate, embrace your fate. You might not have much control over it. It is what it is. Love that you get to be here at all. Love that you get to experience this pale blue dot at what is arguably the most incredibly enlightening, wonderful time in human history. Thank you, Guy. Thank you. Tonight on the Global Research News Hour, Guy McPherson, Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona, on the subject of the near-term threat of extinction to humans and all life on Earth. People wishing to review more on this person can go to the site guymcpherson.com, where you will find, among other things, an essay, Extinction Foretold, Extinction Ignored. The Global Research News Hour airs on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. It also podcasts at globalresearch.ca. Music this week was Shifting Sands by Purple Planet Music. Download at purple-planet.com. To leave feedback, email us at globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I have been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week and stay tuned for more radio coming up next.